My, if it sounds that wonderful, this side of glory, what will it be like when we're with all the saints and the angels? I'm looking forward to that day. Will you take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians 10? We will resume our verse-by-verse study of this amazing epistle. And we're doing it this morning under the heading, Selfless Living for God's Glory. To begin with this morning, I would like for you to think with me a bit. And let me just share my heart on a few things. The supreme motivation that is to govern all that we do, especially in the realm of exercising our Christian freedom, is found in verse 31 of our text this morning, where we read, Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And folks, we either live for the glory of God or we live for the glory of self. It's real simple. And all too often, we are prone to live for the latter rather than the former. And I might add that this is a subject that is particularly concerning for me. I'm passionate about this as a pastor, and I think we all should be as believers, but especially for those who are on the front line of Christian ministry, because everyone in real life, hands-on Christian ministry, will experience seasons of sorrow and betrayal In fact, in the early days of Charles Spurgeon's life, the pain of slander and scorn was so great that he was tempted to quit. And his wife, Susanna, would often hide the morning paper from him so that she could protect him from further insults. He described his melancholy this way, quote, the iron bolt which so so mysteriously fastens the door of hope and hold our spirits in a gloomy prison needs a heavenly hand to push it back. Well, certainly if you're a pastor, you know that feeling. Or for any of you that work closely with people in ministry, you understand this. You know what it is to pour your life into people, and then suddenly something happens that leaves you speechless and helpless and tempted to throw in the towel. And although we all can find comfort knowing that God is up to something in our life during these crucibles of grace, knowing that we are struggling in ways that he has ordained, nevertheless, what I've discovered from experience and more importantly from Scripture is that what we need is something more than an understanding that God causes all things to work together for good. We need something more than knowing that the testing of our faith produces endurance. As marvelous and as wonderful as those truths are, dear friends, we need something so awe-inspiring, so motivating, that nothing can prevent us from getting back up off of our faces when we're knocked down. We need something that will inspire us to grab our sword and get back in the fight. And folks, what that is, is a zeal for the glory of God. What we all need is a soul-captivating, sin-destroying vision of the majesty of God. And what I'm referring to here is literally a life-dominating obsession with the intrinsic glory of God. Who he really is as he has revealed himself in creation and in scripture. In Ephesians 1, the Apostle Paul addresses God's commitment to his own glory and salvation. In what might be considered a magnificent hymn of praise, there he speaks of some of our spiritual blessings in Christ, and he reminds us how the Father, beginning in verse 4 of chapter 1, quote, chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him, 
In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. Dear friends, these are the kinds of truths that need to animate our hearts. We need to remain forever preoccupied with these spiritual realities. Because they can evoke within us a reverential awe. An awe that will cause us to have a wholehearted devotion to God's glory. So that it can be seen in all that we do and all that we say, come what may. And of course, this is consistent with Jesus' command. Remember in Matthew 5, verse 16, he says, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Folks, this is what it means to have a zeal for the glory of God. We must have a a soul-consuming infatuation with the manifestation of the character of God in his works and in his word and in his people. We, we must have within our souls uh, an, an awe-inspiring sense of who God really is so that we can have our own version of David's paean of praise. Remember in Psalm 145, he said this, I will extol you, my God, O King, and I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and I will praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and highly to be praised. And his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wonderful works, I will meditate. Folks, does that characterize your heart? Wouldn't it be amazing if that's how they opened up Congress next week? Hopefully we can all share Solomon's doxology of adoration. In Psalm 72, beginning in verse 18, he said, Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone works wonders, and blessed be his glorious name forever. And may the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. And beloved, one day the whole earth will be filled with his glory. I must say that next to my burden for the lost, I I believe my greatest sorrow in ministry is the lack of adoration for the majesty and holiness of God among professing evangelicals. It's just not there as it should be. And while this is largely a consequence of the powerful temptations of a satanic world system that is bent on providing limitless and seemingly irresistible opportunities for idolatry and self-worship, it is also rooted in a shallow understanding of the perfections of God's character, which produces a lack of desire to know him beyond anything else in life. Indeed, there is little fear of God these days, little trembling in holiness. And therefore, most have no real desire to live for the glory of God, and many don't even know what it looks like. The Old Testament Hebrew term for glory comes from a root that means heavy or weighty. It carried the idea of the heaviness of something, and was therefore a measure of its worth or value. We even will say from time to time that that something is worth its weight in gold, for example. And therefore, the term is often used in the Old Testament uh, in a figurative sense to suggest the remarkable worthiness or intrinsic value of a person. And as we will see, when we give glory to God... When we put his holiness on display in our lives, we attest to that weightiness of who he is. Moses warned the Israelites in Deuteronomy 28 verse 58 to do all the words of this law that are written in this book that you may fear this glorious and awesome name, the Lord your God. 
And it's for this reason that the psalmist exclaims in Psalm 115, verse 1, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. You see, God is jealous of his name, dear friends, because he is jealous of his glory. In fact, in his model prayer, Jesus commands us to pray, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. And that, dear friends, is a passionate petition for God to make his name hallowed. In other words, to make it sanctified. We are to pray that he will cause his name to be treated with utmost holiness. That he might be feared and obeyed and worshipped and glorified. Beloved, it is our zeal for God's glory that unleashes the power of the Spirit of God within us. And that's what causes our lives to redound for his glory and our souls to be flooded with the inexpressible joy of his presence. So we must all have a zeal for the glory of God. We must have a a soul-captivating and a sin-destroying vision of the majesty of God. How else do you think Isaiah survived all of those years of ministry knowing that most people would never listen to him? How else do you think Paul could suffer the way he did all of those years had he not had a vision of the glory of God even in the very beginning on the road to Damascus? How else do you think Peter could have served Christ so faithfully for all of those decades knowing that at the end of his life He would be crucified. The only way anyone can truly maintain a faithful commitment to God is to have a vision of his glory, which produces a zeal to live it out. I fear, however, that this is not the norm in our evangelical culture. Many worship what David Wells describes as a weightless God. I've included this in your bulletin, I believe. Here's what he says. It is one of the defining marks of our time that God is now weightless. I do not mean by this that he is ethereal, but rather that he has become unimportant. He rests upon the world so inconsequentially as not to be noticeable. He has lost his saliency for human life. Those who assure the pollsters of their belief in God's existence may nonetheless consider him less interesting than television, his commands less authoritative than their appetites for affluence and influence, his judgment no more awe-inspiring than the evening news, and his truth less compelling than the advertiser's sweet fog of flattery and lies. That, he says, is weightlessness. Philosophers like to pontificate about the meaning of life. What is the meaning of life? And many people will ask that. Why am I here? It's a great question. Of course, for the atheist, the answer is, well, there's really no purpose. Life is meaningless. Everything is accidental. Everything is random. So just live it up. But dear friends, for the Christian, the answer is, is we are here to give glory to God who has provided a way for us as a sinful people to be reconciled to him through faith in his son. Indeed, the Westminster Shorter Catechism had it right, did it not? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Oh, dear Christians, our lives should be lived in such a way as to proclaim the gospel of God so that we can emanate his glory. Nothing else in life really matters. We're even commanded to sing in Psalm 96 two, sing to the Lord, bless his name, proclaim good tidings of his salvation from day to day. Tell of his glory among the nations, his wonderful deeds among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. Folks, this is the type of worship we are to emulate here on earth. As the angels and the saints do that have gone on before us. So you want to ask yourself this morning as we come to the word. 
Am I really committed to living for the glory of God? Now, certainly this was Paul's concern for the saints at Corinth, as well as every church. You will recall that there were some there that would be what we would call libertines who gave little weight to God. They saw God as, shall we say, kind of light and fluffy, kind of soft and cuddly, like a lot of contemporary Christian music today where they sing about Jesus as if he's our girlfriend. They saw him kind of as a God that winks at sin, doesn't really care what you do, especially in the gray areas of Christian liberty. So they took the law of God too lightly. They would continue to hang around some of their friends in places where there was just gross immorality going on all the time and drunken debauchery. They would think to themselves, well, hey, we're... It, it, we're, we're believers now, and, and, and we're all about grace. We're all about love. And so they live for themselves. And then, of course, there were others that reacted to that strongly. And for them, the pendulum swung all the way from the side of license to legalism. And by the way, we are all prone to these things. And some things we're way over here, and on other things we're way over here. And it can go back and forth. The legalist has a rule for every situation that will guarantee that God gets the glory he deserves. Or at least so they think. And all of you have been around this type of thing. Maybe you're like this. There's a rule for everything, and all you have to do is obey those rules, and then everything is well. And since legalism only provides the illusion of spirituality, typically the legalist is tormented with false guilt about various things. And of course, the, what you have to do at that point, the remedy is simple, more rules. And so there's no end to the rules. Everything seems to be sinful, sinful for the legalist. Their t- conscience or his conscience, their conscience is constantly tortured, and often they live in seclusion, kind of isolated from the world and even from other believers. And they, they tend to only fellowship with those who, I don't know, sing their own music or have their own version of the Bible or share their own choice in fashion or just obey their rules. And so they have little impact on the world. If you've ever been around those kinds of people, especially in those kinds of churches, as I have, you realize very quickly that they live in bondage. They know very little of God's grace, and they make you uncomfortable. You always feel like your own duty around them because you never know when you're going to break one of their rules. This is especially true in other parts of the world. Now, you will recall from chapters 8 all the way through Verse 1 of chapter 11, Paul has been dealing with this whole issue of finding balance, shall we say. Getting the right balance between legalism and license, especially in the realm of Christian liberty. And we all know that whether you're riding a bicycle or I could even say riding a horse, since I've spent so much of my life on top of a horse you know that you've got to stay in the middle of your mount or you're going to be in trouble. If you lean too far either side, there's going to be problems. And some of us have learned this the hard way. Well, the same is true in the Christian life. And I might add that whether we lean to the left or to the right and the the left of license or the right of legalism, you you can still be a godly person. You know, it's, it's not like these people are unspiritual or that we lose our salvation or anything like that. But the point is, either one will cause you to fall off the horse, shall we say. And moreover, neither the libertine nor the legalist is really giving glory to God in a way that is really what he wants, as we will see. So what happens is here is Paul provides a very practical summary of what he has been addressing since chapter 8 concerning the proper principles to navigate uh, the gray areas of, of Christian liberty. In other words, those, those questionable areas that are not specifically forbidden in Scripture. 
And in general, the law of Christian liberty can be summarized by what Paul said in chapter 6, verse 12. He said, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. And what we have here in the text before us is an extension of these principles, how to deal with those morally gray areas. And there's really five questions that we can ask. Let me give them to you and I'll expound upon them. First of all, we need to ask, is it profitable for edification? Secondly, is it motivated by a concern for the good of my neighbor? Number three, is it permissible to a mature conscience unencumbered with weak faith? Number four, is it offensive to an immature believer whose conscience is encumbered by weak faith? And finally, will it give glory to God? Now, Paul is going to use, once again, this issue of meat being sacrificed to idols to illustrate these values. And as we have seen in previous verses, believers were never to eat meat sacrificed to idols in pagan temples or as part of a pagan ceremony. However, if the meat sacrificed to idols was sold in the meat market, Or if it was served to you at a private table, it's okay, eat it without any concern. Unless you are dining privately with friends and a believer's conscience is troubled, knowing that that meat was sacrificed to idols. And if that's the case, as we're going to see, then don't eat it. Never do anything that might cause a believer to violate his conscience. Avoid giving needless offense. And then by your conciliatory conduct, you imitate the Apostle Paul as he imitated Christ. And in so doing, you give glory to God. You see, what we're going to see here is that our love for one another is a powerful testimony to unbelievers. And we must never jeopardize that by flaunting our Christian liberty and or condemning the weak. So let's look more closely at the text and see what the Spirit says to each of us individually. And I find this very instructive, very encouraging. Again, the first question we must ask when confronted with a a gray area of Christian liberty is this. Is it profitable for edification? For example, you're, you're trying to figure out whether you should see a certain movie or not, or go to a certain concert or not, or, you know, what type of video game you need to, to purchase, or, or, you know, should I go to this party where there are certain people there that I'm not sure about, and there's a lot of alcohol, etc. Well, you know, those types of things. Now, notice what he says here in verse 23. All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. And when he says all things, he's referring here to things not specifically condemned or forbidden in Scripture. All of those things are are lawful. In other words, they're permissible. There's, There's nothing that says you can't do this. And evidently, this was a very popular slogan among the Corinthian believers. All things, all things are lawful. You know, they, they had the t-shirts and the hats and the, coffee mugs and embroidered wrist bracelets, all things are lawful, and they had banners hanging from their doors and all of this type of thing. And of course, that's good for evangelism, right? You know, come to our new church, you know, Calvary Bible Church of Corinth, you know, we're all Christians, but hey, don't worry, you don't have to give up the good life because all things are lawful. So that was kind of what was going on. Now, to be sure, we must all celebrate our freedom in Christ. Paul said in Galatians 5.1, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. So indeed, all things are lawful, but he says not all things are profitable. Profitable means beneficial or constructive or helpful. Not all things are constructive for ourselves or for others. So you, you, can, you can use this, for example, when you, when you think about, you know, some of those gray areas like alcohol use or tobacco use. Uh, I've had to deal with some people re- recently on pot abuse. You know, what does the Bible say about that? And I don't want to get off on that, but, you know, if you want to have respiratory problems and hallucinations and delusions and slowed reaction time and, and you 
probably don't want to get a good job, then yeah, go, go ahead and go for that type of thing. Um, but remember, again, it may be lawful, but is it profitable? And Paul even said, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. But then he adds another dimension. Notice what he says in verse 23 at the end. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Edify is a compound word in the original language, okodomia, and it basically means to build a house or to construct something or to strengthen something, like to build up your body, for example. Jude 20, build yourselves up. There's the word, build yourselves up in, the mo- in your most holy faith. So he's saying not all things are beneficial in building me up spiritually or building up the spiritual temple, the church, my brothers and sisters in Christ, my family, and so forth. Let me give you a couple of other passages. Acts 20 and verse 32. And now I commend you to God and to the work of his grace, which is able to, here it is, build you up. That's what the word does. First Thessalonians 5.11, encourage one another and build up one another. Romans 14.19 that we read earlier, pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. So we have to ask, is this a priority in my life? By the way, isn't it wonderful when someone comes alongside you to help build you up? I, I was thinking about this, and I was starting to just go over in my mind the people that I've had. You know, ever, even when I was a little boy in Sunday school class, and my youth leaders and pastors and friends, what a gift that is. And everything we do here at Calvary Bible Church is motivated out of a desire to build you up, to strengthen you in your faith. This is consistent with Ephesians 5.29. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification. There's the same word. According to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 14.26, Paul says, let all things be done for edification. So that needs to be a priority. So when it comes to the gray areas of Christian liberty, we need to ask, will this choice, will this activity help me grow up in Christ? Will it help build up my spouse, my children, my friends, my church family, so that they will become more like Christ? So bottom line, is it profitable for edification? So we can use this in, you know, any of our decision-making. You know, should I put my kids in sports? The Bible doesn't say you can't. But what happens if all of a sudden that sport participation causes the child to be away from church every Sunday? Well, you have to begin to ask, is this a wise thing to do or whatever? You know, should I get a nose ring and dye my hair pink? Well, the Bible doesn't say you can't do that. But, you know, is that going to be beneficial? Is that going to build me up or build others up? Whatever. Somebody was asking me the other day about tattoos. You know, that's a preference. Some of you have tattoos. Some of you wish you had tattoos. Some of you wish you didn't have some of the tattoos you have. That's how it works. Uh, I was reading some research, by the way, on advanced dermatology. And it was talking about tattoo regret. And it it would do it by tattoo and body part. It was really fascinating. And, And, you know, it can be a serious issue. Especially if, you know, you get a big one that says, got a heart, and it says Margaret forever. And then you break up with Margaret. Now you got a problem, you see. But whatever it is, you, you want to ask these questions. So, again, whether you fall off on the side of legalism or license, you've got to ask the question, will my choice, will my conduct be profitable for edification? And if the answer is yes, then you can do that for the glory of God, and if it's no, then by abstaining from that, you're giving glory to God. And secondly, we have to ask, is it motivated by a concern for the good of my neighbor? Notice what Paul says in verse 24, let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. Boy, this strikes right at the heart of our self-centeredness, doesn't it? At least it does mine. I remember when I was meditating upon this, I thought, ooh, boy, you know, that's, that, that's an issue that I need to look at in my life. And again, now, the, the context here is eating meat sacrificed to idols. It, it may be okay for you, but what about your brother in Christ who struggles with that? 
We're supposed to seek his good, not our own good. In other words, let the welfare of our neighbor govern our Christian liberty, not our own good, not our own preference, not our own conviction. And, of course, this, this, this just thrusts a sword right through the heart of our selfishness because we all have this attitude, nobody's going to tell me what to do. What I do on my own is my own business. If you don't like it, tough. By the way, that is the opposite of what we read in Philippians 2, right? Beginning in verse 3. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than ourselves, than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. So we have to ask ourselves, am I willing to do that? In some areas, I know I have, and in other areas, I haven't, and probably some areas I need to. I remember a couple that I had to. I, I got a banjo years ago, learned to play it, and I eventually had to get rid of it. And it was really, for this reason, it had become an idol. Every time I walked into the room, it would reach out and grab me for about two and a half hours. And the better I got on that banjo, the more time I would spend with it. And I finally realized I I, I have to give this up. I had to give up a lot of things that I've enjoyed doing over the years because it it's it's not for the best of my family or or my church family, like hunting and shooting tournaments and some of those types of things. Some of those things can become all too consuming. And I, I also had to deal with that or this particular issue, with respect to alcohol. Let me tell you my thinking on this. I had to ask these questions when it comes to that issue. You know, does, does it put me at risk of being mastered by something other than Christ? And for me personally, the answer was, yeah, it could. So I need to be careful with that. Might it cause others to stumble? Well, yeah, it, it really can, um, especially alcoholics. And I know we have a number in this in this church where where you just have to stay away from it. And especially those who have seen families destroyed by alcohol. I had to also ask, is it profitable for my edification and the building up of others? Well, you know, you're kind of stretching it there a bit, I guess. Does it seek the good of my neighbor? Well, not if they have weak faith or not if their conscience holds them to something that, that could seriously be violated with that. So I have to look at those things. I had to do that. By the way, let me comment for a moment on weak faith. I use that concept. In Romans 14.1, we are to, quote, accept the one who is weak in faith. This is a reference to those whose faith is not strong enough to enable them to perceive their full liberty in Christ. And because they are so afraid of committing some religious infraction, some offense, they surround themselves with a lot of self-imposed restrictions. They're, they're often governed by superstitions and strange legalistic prejudices. And Paul warns us that if a strong Christian causes a weak one to violate his conscience, even on a non-essential then that weaker believer will feel guilt, and typically that will drive him deeper into legalism. So it's a very serious issue. We're not to condemn those people. We're not to judge them. We read that earlier. We are to love them. We are to build them up. Romans 14, 13, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. Verse 19, pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Romans 15, 2, each of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his edification. And so it's for this reason that I personally refrain from alcohol, not because God forbids it, but for these reasons. And other godly people see it differently, but these are the principles that we need to use to evaluate these kinds of things. Um, You know, I've been attacked for many things as a pastor over the years. And many of those things are legitimate. 
Some of them aren't. But, you know, I have never had anyone say, you know, I can't believe that pastor doesn't drink. There's no way I'm going to go to a church that's being pastored by some legalist that doesn't drink. I've never had anybody say that. But, boy, if it was the other way around and I did drink, there would be plenty who would say, I can't believe that pastor drinks. And so you get that whole thing going on, especially in our culture. Now, if I'm in private company with believers and they're drinking wine or whatever, you know, I'll probably decline it because I don't like it. But I'm not in the least bit offended, especially when I go to Europe. And you go to Spain. I mean, it's, it's, there's a bottle there, you know, all the time. And, and if I'm in a situation where beer or wine is the only thing offered, I'll, I'll hold my nose and drink it. It's not, you know, I'm not hung up on that type of thing. Um, and by the way, this is the, the third principle that Paul talks about here in, in verses 25 through 27. And I, I put it this way, is it permissible to a mature conscience unencumbered by weak faith? Notice what he says, verse 25. Eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. Now, I think Paul had a sense of humor. And the reason I say that is because that phrase, for the earth is the Lord's and all it contains, is out of Psalm 24, and it's a phrase that the Jews would repeat like a prayer every time they got ready to eat a meal. By the way, he said the same thing in 1 Timothy 4, beginning in verse 4, for everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude, for it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. Notice then, Paul goes on to say this in verse 27, if one of the unbelievers invites you and you want to go, eat anything that is set before you without asking questions for conscience sake. Now, remember the context here. The meat in the markets were all offered to idols. I mean, if you went to Kroger's in Corinth or Publix in Corinth or whatever, you go to the meat thing, they've all already been offered to idols. And this was really tough on Jewish believers because they had to eat for, for a long time before coming to Christ. And many of them, even after they came to Christ, they had to eat meat that was kosher. It had to be killed a certain way. It had to be treated in a certain way, prescribed under Old Testament law. And, and they couldn't even go into a meat market that had meat that had been offered to idols. And now Paul is telling them, yes, it is true. What you pray all the time, the earth is the Lord and Lord's and all it contains, including meat sacrificed to idols. That's what he's saying. That meat that's sold in the market, including that same meat that the Gentiles will serve you when you go over to their house on Sunday dinner or when you go over to their place for Wi-Fi during the week and they offer you some barbecue. What he's saying is... It's fine. Eat it. Pass the pork. Don't worry about it anymore. Enjoy what they serve you. Enjoy your freedom. <laughs> I thought of this the other day. Um, I had to get the oil changed in Nancy's car, so I dropped it off over here in Pleasant View. Uh, and I, it was at dinner t- lunchtime, and I, I was hungry. And, and I said, you know, you change the oil and get new wipers on this thing, and I'm going to go over here to Wendy's and eat. Um, I'm very health conscious, that's why I went to Wendy's. So I get in line, and, and, you know, they have two registers, and it was my time, and I got up here, and there was this lady here, and she was a, obviously a health-conscious lady, very scrupulous, and she's asking all these questions about the food. And I noticed a couple of construction guys next to her rolling their eyes, you know, they're... They're wanting, them, wanting her to hurry up. And uh, remember, she asked if the toma- tomatoes were organic. And, I mean, you can look at them, and at this time of year, they, they look yellow, you know. And, but the one that really killed me, she asked if the, if the beef was grass-fed. I, I thought, good grief, lady, th- this is Wendy's. I mean, it may not even be beef. I mean, there may be, there, there may be horse mixed in with this. And, but... but she was just very scrupulous about all of this stuff. By the way, later on, what was really interesting is when I went in to walk back over, she went out to her car, and as she was getting in the car, she lit up a cigarette. So I thought, well, 
Well, the parallel that I'm trying to make with that silly story, it made sense to me. I don't know if it'll make sense to you. But the parallel is that's how a lot of Jewish believers were. And even Gentile believers, when they would go to the market, you know, what, what about this food? Or they'd sit down, what, what about this food? Now, this wasn't, this wasn't offered to idols, was it? And what Paul is saying, look, it's no big deal. Don't get legalistic on this stuff. By the way, just as a footnote, don't think that every believer who might be offended by something has weak faith and they're tempted to fall into some sin or whatever. There there are a lot of people that are just factious, nitpicking Pharisees, and they're just going to find something wrong with everything. I, I remember... I remember a guy years ago in the ministry, he called me up, wanted to talk to me, and he started raking me over the coals because uh, we had some pumpkins that we had carved and, at Halloween, and they, they looked like smiley face, you know, at Walmart, but he was offended with that, and we had let our grandkids go trick-or-treating, and he was just really offended with that, and some of you may be, but it didn't bother us, but anyway, there's going to be some people who just find problems with everything, remember a guy years ago, he was sitting over here, uh, the, the configuration was different, and at the close of the service, he made a beeline to me. I didn't know who he was, and he started reaming me out. He literally called me a heretic because we, I didn't have an altar call. He was some evangelist that came to visit. I mean, you know, we're not going to change everything for those kinds of people. That's not the type of sensitivity we need to have. I remember on several occasions, one family in particular, they were so upset when they visited the church because some of the women wore slacks. And I remember one of the ladies uh, even was complaining that some of the ladies had short hair and some of the men had long hair. Well, my point is, we're not going to say, oh, folks, we got some believers here that are offended. So ladies, no more slacks. Ladies, no more short hair. Men, no more long hair. You, You get my point. So we have to be sensitive to that. So in gray areas, if it is permissible to your conscience, along with these other principles, you know, go ahead and do it. So is it profitable for edification? Is it motivated by concern for the good of my neighbor? Is it permissible to a mature conscience unencumbered by weak faith? And number four, we have to ask, is it offensive to an immature believer whose conscience is encumbered by weak faith? Notice verse 28. But, here's a qualifier, if anyone says to you, this meat, or this is meat sacrificed to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you, and for conscience sake. I mean, not your own conscience, but the other man's. For why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? The, the scene here is an unbeliever in, invites some of you over from the church, and serves the meat, and all of a sudden, one of the believers realizes, oh my, this meat's been sacrificed to idols. So what should you do? Give them a lecture on weak faith or whatever? No. Out of love for them, you abstain. You don't eat it. That's what he's saying here. You know, your conscience may be fine, but what he's saying is, I will not allow my freedom to be judged by another man's weak conscience. And it wouldn't bother me to eat it, but I'm not going to do that. In fact, if it was me, I may distract him. What, what is that? And then reach and grab some meat and put it in my pocket for later on. But, but I don't want to offend my brother. That's the point. Now, you might ask, well, wouldn't that offend the host, the Gentile host? Yeah, it probably would. But here's the point, dear friends. It's better to offend a non-believer than a believer. Very important principle. In fact, a non-believer will probably be stunned by your love for your brother or your sister. Jesus says, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you what? If you love one another. And this is the way you do that. Verse 30, he says, if I partake with thankfulness, why am I slandered concerning that for which I give thanks? In other words, I don't want to give offense to a weaker brother and be blamed for something that I might receive with thanksgiving. I don't want to do something that might cause my weaker brother to condemn me or speak evil of me. So I'm I'm just going to abstain. That's fine. 
Beloved, we can and we will disagree on secondary matters, right? I mean, it's just, it's just life. We're not all going to like the same shows. We're not all going to like the same music, especially in the church. As I've said, there's never been a, a worship service in the history of the church where everyone's liked the music. It's just not going to happen. Not everybody's going to like the same fashion or the same hairstyles. You know, you'll probably never see me up here in tattered jeans, barefooted, and, and a little T-shirt. You know, you're probably just not going to see that. Um, you'll probably never see me in, you know, skinny jeans and a neck tattoo. I mean, I just, that's just not me. I mean, I, I still think I'm losing my man card when I go to Starbucks, you know. So we're, we're all different on these things. We're just not going to agree on everything. But when... Not if we disagree on non-essentials in those gray areas of Christian liberties. Folks, let's disagree in love, okay? Just drop it. Let's just move on. You know, it's cults that demand uniformity in belief, right? Or it can be errant evangelicals that have, have that herd mentality. Here's the rules, obey the rules, and if you don't, you're not going to go to heaven, saw a video the other day where a guy was arguing that we could lose our salvation out of, out of John 15. He was saying that you don't really lose your salvation, but the Father cuts you off the vine if you don't bear the right fruit. And I thought, oh my goodness, poor guy has no idea what John 15 is saying. But, I mean, that's the mentality. I mean, think about that. I mean, if the Father's going to cut you off, how do you know if you've been cut off, right? How do you know how much fruit you're supposed to bear? Oh, I'm glad you asked. Let me tell you, you need to do this and you need to do this. Oh, you sure? that? Good? Yeah, and you do this and you do that. Then you'll be good. Well, you get the idea. There's no freedom in Christ with that. But there is freedom in Christ and we have it and it must be regulated by love. And the final thing quickly here is we have to ask, will it give glory to God? Whether then, he says in verse 21, you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. You see, folks, that's our goal. His glory, not ours. We've got to keep our balance here in these things. And he says, give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. I mean, think about that. And what a precious statement to the church of God. We are God's own possession We are the ones that he has called out from eternity past. We are his chosen bride. We are to give him glory. Verse 33, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many. Why? So that they may be saved. And folks, what happens when people are saved? God gets glory. That's the point. And I might add that this is the driving force behind everything that Paul did and everything that he said regarding Christian liberty. Remember in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 19, he says, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all. Why? So that I may win more. Verse 20 at the end, that I might win those who were under the law. Verse 21, that I might win those who are without law. Verse 22, I have become all things to all men that I may by all means save some. Oh, child of God, I hope this is the burden of your heart. To see those who are weary and broken, who are distraught, who've been beaten up, who are in despair, slaves to sin, filled with guilt. To see them and say, oh, these dear people need the Lord. And I want to do everything that I possibly can to let them see Christ in me. And I want to show love to my brothers and sisters in Christ and love to the lost. And folks, when this is the passion of your heart, you will gladly govern your Christian liberty by love. That's the point. A love for Christ, a love for your brothers and sisters in Christ, and a love for the lost. That's why he says in verse 1 of chapter 11, be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. In other words, follow my example as I follow Christ's example. And Christ's example 
is that he laid aside his glory. He emptied himself. He humbled himself by, by becoming obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross. Oh, dear Christian, let's celebrate his love today and imitate him every day, especially in the realm of our Christian liberty. May we all be committed to selfless living for God's glory, knowing that someday, think about this, someday we're going to see him face to face in all of his glory. My head explodes when I think about that. I cannot wait. And to know that we will stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. We keep that in mind. We keep these principles in mind. And then in the gray areas of life, we ask these questions. We come to our own conclusions, which may be different than others. But before the Lord, we come to, these, to our own conclusions. Thus, we honor the Lord in our life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the very practical nature of this passage of Scripture. And even though we don't deal with meat sacrificed to idols, we deal with other very similar things. And so, that I pr- so I pray that by the power of your Spirit, you will help us to remember these things and apply them to our life so that we can experience the fullness of the blessings that you have for us and ultimately so that we can win the lost to Christ and thereby give him glory. For it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.